Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Matthew Rosenberg, writer of Uncanny X-Men, The Punisher, Four Kids Walking on Bank, and Hawkeye Freefall. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, including not just that, but also happy 100th episode, Eddie. OMG, I can't believe it's been that many. What are you talking about? I had no idea that this was going to be the 100th episode until I checked the iTunes RSS feed, but here we are. Okay, all right. But before we get into all that, how can we get a hold of us on social media? Please, tell them. First off, go on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Marvelists. Give us a like, a follow, a tweet, a whatever, a Instagram like. If they're still showing Pick one, don't do it all at once. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be pretty. I mean you have to have like multiple devices to do that, but And be like Dr. Octopus. Mm. Also, you can find us on a wide variety of other platforms for us individually on social media. I didn't know where I was going with that, but I Shoes. Figured out, yeah. Platform shoes? Myself, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster and on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick and yourself? On Instagram at Eddie9193. It's the only place to find you on social media, I believe. Exactly, and a side note, if you catch some, uh, I don't know, cosplayer photographs, sometimes they give me credit because I'm kind of like dabbling in that as a little side hobby thing. Very cool. It's fun. Also, you can find us on a wide variety of streaming and downloadable platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud. I probably said Spotify in there, but if I did, well. I need a list. Put it on it. You can also find us on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share if you're ever so inclined. And remember, much like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, four stars and below just does not work. Only five stars. Keep it five stars. Keep it 100, but... Just keep it five stars. I'm rambling. Mm. Anyway, we want to introduce you all to our special guest for this 100th episode. He is a comic book writer for a bunch of different companies, but mainly Marvel. And at Marvel, he's done some phenomenal work, including the current Punisher series where we've seen him just do all sorts of crazy shit, especially my personal favorite, the War Machine storyline. And he's currently working on... Hawkeye Freefall, we are joined with Mr. Ashcan Press himself, Matthew Rosenberg. Matt, how are you doing today? Oh, that's me. We're introducing me. Uh, hey, how's it going, guys? I'm, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. He is the pontificator of the long intro, so thank you for your patience. Well, that's Kevin Smith more, just saying. Uh, he can do like a 45-minute intro for somebody, and I, I can't even do it. But, well, you, you try. You sure, you uh, well, sure try. I liked it. I liked it. I thought you did great, Peter. And there's a lot of stuff on top of that. Like my, some of my favorite stuff that you've done, by the way, four kids in uh, going walking to a bank. I believe it's called walk. Yes, yes, I, walk. <laughs> I'm su- like such a like walk don't run. Yes. song from the '60s. Yeah, yeah. But of course, we can never go home. Which I wrote that too. Yeah. Hot damn, is that good? Oh, thank you. But today we're on the Marvel kick. Obviously, we're the sure. Marvelists, and. Sure. The big thing that just came out, as of this recording on January 
January 3rd, this past Wednesday, Hawkeye Free Fall came out into stores number one, as well as the book alongside yourself, Otto Schmidt. I'm excited about it, and I read the first issue. It's fun stuff, and it's got that essence of what Hawkeye can be. Matthew, what do you think of the book so far that you've written? What do I think of it? <laughs> yes. Um, I like it. It's fine, I guess. I don't know. I, I wouldn't pay money for it, but I, I knew what was going to happen. Uh, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the book. Uh, it's, uh, I, I'm a huge Clint Barton fan, so getting to write him uh, is a big honor always. And also, he's just such a fun character to play with um, that, that it's sort of always – you know, it, it's it's one of those like I can't believe they pay me to do this. I you know I do this for free uh, kind of kind of things. But uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 a Hawkeye is definitely a, a book that I've I've wanted to do since I started writing comics, and so it's it feels pretty surreal that it's out in the world now, and and people seem to be digging it. The reaction has been incredibly kind, so that's always a nice feeling. I know as of this recording, it's currently one of the top sellers on Comixology.com, and I was really ecstatic seeing that in there. And this is not the first time you've been on the top of the charts of Comixology. I do believe your Uncanny X-Men series was on there quite a bit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's Uncanny X-Men. Uh, it's yeah, pretty popular. though. Just saying, just saying. Sure, we could say that. Um, but yeah, uh, it's always nice when people buy the books in, in any format, um, digital or, or physical, it's always a, a little bit of a surreal moment that, you know, people are willing to lay down their, their four bucks to read something I wrote. It's, but it's nice to see. How, uh, Matthew, did you start what year, how long ago and what did you start with, with your writing? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm terrible with time. Um, I don't know why, like I, I, I'm, I just have no sense of how much time has passed, but yeah, I, I started writing, um, my, my origin story as it were is a little different than I think a lot of, uh, sort of my peers, because I think a lot of, a lot of my contemporaries in, in comics writing kind of, uh, <clears throat> They sort. Of, I meet a lot of comics creators who are like, yeah, I, you know, I've been trying to do this since I was a little kid, and and that's not me. Um, I've been a comics fan since I was could read. I, I I learned to read reading my older brother's comics, but I never thought about making them. I just you know like I I tried to draw, and when I was eleven, and realized that I couldn't draw like Todd McFarlane, I gave it up, and. Um, yeah, I just never sort of looked back, and I was always just a fan, and I I just hit a point when I was an adult and had a job I didn't like and sort of was looking to do something else. And I was like, maybe I'm just going to try and make comics and see how that works. And I knew nothing about it. Um, and I just kind of dove in, uh, my buddy, Patrick Kinlan, who's also a comics writer. Um, now he was my only friend who, you know, regularly read comics with me and, and he's a really great writer. And I was like, we should try and make comics together. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and and that's what we did. We just started, you know, pitching stuff and self-publishing and doing a web comic and all this kind of stuff to get, um, you know, to try and figure out how to make comics and to try and get a name out there and get our foot in the door. So that was, man, I don't know, seven years ago that we started. I don't know. It was a while. And then 
uh, sort of my first break, our first break, uh, I end, I ended up doing me and, and my buddy Patrick ended up co-writing a, a book called 12 reasons to die. Um, that featuring we did Ghostface with, killer. Yeah. Yeah. We did with Riza and Ghostface from the Wu-Tang clan. And, um, it's just a murderer's row. I, I put the book together and it's just sort of a murderer's row of like amazing artists. And it's, you know, like Joel Jones and Ron Wimberly and, um, you know, there's just like uh, 22, 24 artists in the book. And it's, it's just like, um, I just, I just begged and pleaded and offered money to everyone whose work I loved. And yeah, and that was sort of my, my first thing, um, which is now a 20, shoot, I want to say 2014, 2012, 2012. Look at that. My time is terrible. Uh, <laughs> you said about 12. seven years, so you're close. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I actually have the uh, Phantom variant, and when I I was on your uh, inst- your uh, Twitter page today, and I saw the the pinned post of all of the comics you've done, and I'm like looking through, I'm like, what was his earliest Marvel thing? And then I see twelve, uh, twelve, and I'm just like, holy yeah. shit! I I have that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for picking it up. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, my first Marvel thing was uh not too long after that. Um, I did a, a story in Secret Wars Journal that was a 10-page X-Men story um, about, like, during the Secret Wars event. It was sort of a alternate universe X-Men story where they were in uh, Egyptia, the alternate world where Egypt has taken over the world. And that was my first Marvel thing, which wasn't too much after 12 Reasons to Die. How did that first Marvel experience come about? Um, yeah, so, uh, I live in New York, luckily, so, um, I, I I sort of would run into people from Marvel a bunch and in sort of certain scenes and, uh, I was, I was very good at, at kind of being, uh, you know, like, uh, trying to always just sort of, you know, say hello and, you know, if you're at a comic shop and you see an editor, say hello, but don't stick around too long and, and, uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Don't be a stalker. Don't be a creep. Um, hi, Mark Ruffalo. Hi, Mark Ruffalo. (laughs) The, uh, but yeah, I I just wanted to, you know, sort of stay on their radar as much as I could. And when I, when I started putting books out, I would mail them in. So I, I, when 12 reasons to die came out, I mailed it into the office and, um, you know, I was doing some other stuff and, and Jake Thomas, who, uh, is a great editor. He's my editor on Punisher and one of the best editors in comics. Um, he was just putting together a thing and had short stories and was looking for new people. And I think I had, you know, bugged him enough that he was like, okay, I'll give this guy something to get him to shut up. And, uh, <clears throat> and it worked. I, I, I shut up and did an X-Men story and then, you know, <laughs> probably didn't bug him for a whole, yeah, yeah. You know, I probably didn't bug him for another week or two, so that that was uh that was great for him. And one of the other books that, like we had said, was one of the ones that kind of just kickstarted you as a name in comics was We Can Never Go Home. And what was your reaction to the massive outpouring of response to that? Yeah, I mean, it was really uh, it, it was my that was my first creator owned book and. Uh, I mean, it was really crazy because when the book came out, like, you know, you always have high hopes and, 
all these like you know you, you want your book to be a hit and everyone to back it but you know we were at black mask as a small new company and you know we were a pretty unknown creative team and uh you know it came out and the numbers were okay and you know for an indie comic and they were respectable and i'd worked really hard and i i, I was happy with that and then uh the day it came out stores just started emailing me being like hey this just sold out like right away can i get more can i get more diamond doesn't have any and like black mask had ones and then they were like i was telling sending a black mask and black mask was like we we're gone and then i had comps and i was sending my comps to stores and we went back to a print and you know second print and by the time well i think three days before the second print hit shelves that was sold out and diamond was like you need to do a third print and by the end of by by everything said and done, I think we were eight printings of the first issue, which is a a cool bragging point, but also sucks because going back to print costs a lot of money. So it's like, yeah, a lot of people ended up buying the book, but we no one made any money and it was a lot of work and all this stuff. But, uh, you know, that's a champagne problem if ever there was one. Um, but it was, you know, it's really surreal to have people care. I'm uh, I'm assuming it varies, but when you go back for another print run, the I'm assuming the number that you go back for will definitely vary. I don't know what the range of numbers it could go from, but any any insight in there? Yeah, I mean it it uh it it definitely varies. I mean the second print, I think the original I you know I'm I'm not going to know the numbers off the top of my head. I think the initial print run was like four thousand, which like for an indie comic is pretty respectable um at the time and uh i think the second print was also was the same and then the third print was higher and that sold out and you know by the end of it it was absurd because it was the kind of thing where it's like oh if we just launched with these numbers we'd have been a like really noticeable good good uh well-placed indie comic but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it varies. You got to have a certain amount or it's not worth turning on the printer. Like you can't just be like, we need 40 copies, um, starting the machines and all that is expensive. So, but yeah, I mean, every print run was, I mean, we had, I think we had three print runs in a row on, we can never go home. Number one that were higher than the previous, like each one was more. And meanwhile, issue two came out and, you know, had to go to four or five printings and issue three had to go, you know, it just was like kind of snowballing in a crazy way. And, and that, yeah, a lot of people noticed that for sure. And when it came to that series, every time I've seen you, I end up bringing it up, but the music cover variants that you would do it, that was, I believe yours came out around the time, maybe a little bit before when Marvel was doing, you know, hip hop cover variants and just, you know, music cover variants in general. But yours were yeah. really cool because you had bands like, you know, homages to Bad Brains. But the one that, you know, got my attention was Big Black. Songs yeah, about yeah. word I can't say on this show. But it was just something that was cool to see for this kind of comic. Whose idea was it to go for those kind of covers? Uh, it was my idea. I mean, the music plays a big part in the book. It's sort of the... You know, it's about the book is about two kids in the late 80s in high school who have strange abilities and sort of get into trouble and decide to go on the run. But one of them is like a punk rock kid who's kind of an outcast. And, you know, he sort of 
he makes a mixtape for for the girl like uh, the 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 male lead makes a mixtape the female lead and sort of like um and, and that sort of kicks things off kicks off their friendship and their their relationship and um and so music was always a big part of it we were making soundtracks and and early on i was like yeah let's just do these you know stores were asking us for variant covers and i was like well let's you know like rather than just have 20 different people draw the main characters like let's do something weird and different and so i was just taking contemporary records from those times like ones that were drawn specifically that was sort of our rule was that it had to be uh it had to be art it had to be drawn art that we would try and replicate towards the end we had to do so many that that we didn't quite finish with that i know we did the um SSD record cover and a Clash record cover that are both photos. Oh, and the Smiths. We ended up doing a Smiths one for a store that asked. And those were photos. But up until that point, they were all like like Big Black and Bad Brains and um, Bad Religion and Black Flag and stuff. And they were all, uh, you know, original like sort of comic-y art covers, which was sort of fun to homage. Which was your favorite of all the covers? Um. I really like the the Bad Brains one. It's sort of just an iconic, great logo. So it was fun to rip it off. But but I think the big black one was the funniest just because it's, you know, like, I think the store that ended up getting it didn't really know what they were getting. And people were calling being like, do you have the songs about, you can believe me, cover. <laughs> uh, and the store was just like, what are you talking about? And it was it was kind of a great, funny thing. And. I still get people sometimes who are like, I saw this record and it looked like that cover to the book. And I was like, yeah, that was it. What a beautiful like, coincidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How random. Um, but yeah, that was really fun. But uh, they, they were all, they were all, you know, mostly just to make ourselves work on the book laugh and stuff like that. So. Uh, I don't want to have you narrow it down to anything specific, but with all the characters you have done, is there any that, gave you a special, I don't know, warm feeling about the the context, the mindset that you're in when you were doing the, a storyline, again, for whichever character, um, but does anyone come to mind that jumps out as, oh, yeah, I really liked what happened with this character, or if you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, um, hmm, interesting question. Whether it's, you know, Hawkeye or somebody else that, the Punisher, or your own creations. Uh, you know, I, I really I really liked writing Multiple Man. I liked writing Jamie and bringing Jamie back. He's a favorite of mine, and he'd been dead for a little bit. And um, I didn't even know he was sick. Oh, yeah. He was very sick. He got poisoned by a toxic cloud. Uh, sad times. And the uh, bringing him back, I think, I think he's a really fun character, and I think, you know, a, a lot of the... Especially the the Peter David X Factor stuff set him set him up in this very interesting way, where like he has all these multiple copies of himself, all his dupes, that each are sort of dominant and less dominant slivers of his personality and aspects of his personality, and and that was really fun to play with in like subtle and interesting ways because you get these sort of <clears throat> you you can take the character and then sort of twist him and examine different parts of him in a fun way. And, uh, you, you know, in that book, the spoiler, if people are going to read it, you might want to cover yours. But in the end, we end up, 
sort of the the Jamie that most people know is dead when the book starts and and doesn't come back. We don't have him anymore. And we bring back a different one who's sort of this egomaniacal, you know, kind of power hungry, but still kind of goofy and, and fun loving Jamie. And then we end up sort of redeeming him from his own sort of weird Machiavellian power plays. And he, he sacrifices himself to save the world. And at the end, I sort of had this moment of just like, well, I want to have a Jamie stick around, a Jamie Madrox one left. And the the joke I, I said in passing, and then we made it come to be, is that the one who sticks around is the one who doesn't show up to the fights. He's he's sort of just a guy who would rather be sitting in a bar and, and not really paying attention, which I don't think is, you know, Jamie's not a coward normally, but I don't think he's that far off. He's not exactly the big mainstream superhero. And then I ended up writing on Candy X-Men with Kelly Thompson at Brisson and Jamie played a big role in that. And, uh, you know, Kelly and Ed were really into the idea of the fact that, like, this is an X-Man who doesn't want to get in fights. Like, this is an X-Man who doesn't want to be a superhero, but he's here because he always has been. And um, so it was really fun. And I, I sort of enjoyed always playing with him. And he just felt very kind of every man in, in an enjoyable way to me. Now, in regards to characters like Multiple Man and your run on Uncanny X-Men, one of the things that's most notorious about working on an X-Men title or any X-Men related title is the issue of the legendary C-word, continuity. Sure. How hard was it to work alongside those constraints of the continuity of the X-Men? Because it's so massive. It's so it can counteract itself sometimes, it, you know, can contradict itself. Sure. Yeah. What was it like working with that? I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge X-Men fan. Um, I'm sort of the, the, I don't know. Like I'm a, I've been a super huge X-Men fan my whole life. So the continuity never seemed that, difficult to me. There's obviously things that do sort of contradict themselves and there's weird explanations for, you know, you can be like, well, was it Gene or was it the, was Gene in the cocoon and in the bottom of the river? And it was actually, you know, the, the Phoenix looking like Gene and things like that, where there, there's funny, like little places where you, you look at a, a nod and you look at a, a character thing and it's like, well, this is clearly some sort of continuity glitch that they're working out. But uh, other than that, like I, I just know this stuff inherently because I've read pretty much every X-Men comic ever as a fan. And, you know, I get to sort of be, uh, you know, my the it's kind of the thing I've been studying for for 30 years. Like I, I you know, I got to take a test that that I didn't know I was getting ready for when I was four, but I was so. The continuity stuff was never that daunting. It, it's always funny because I think a lot of X-Men fans and Marvel fans in general, um, they go into the books with a real – not a lot, but some go into the books with a real sense that like the writers don't know what they're doing and are looking for us to trip up and sort of catch us. And it's always been that way. I mean back in the days of Stan you know, running things, there was the no prize for like – people who'd call in, to, you know, write in to point out little continuity errors or mistakes or whatever. Um, but it is, it is funny when you tell a story because uh, there are people who like will call you out 
on things online on social media and be like, you know, this is a mistake because of this. And and sometimes stories unfold not in a linear fashion where uh, there are things that you don't understand at the beginning of the end that will be explained later. And so it's always, you know, that's that's something I really like in a story where like there's some questions at first and that sort of drives you. And uh, that specifically in X-Men seemed to drive X-Men continuity fans crazy. Like in Phoenix Resurrection, they when I started doing X stuff in Phoenix Resurrection, you know, every week there'd be, you know, all these questions. And I'd be like, you got to keep reading. And people would just be so obsessed with like, well, you got this wrong. And I'd be like, but did I like yeah. keep reading? And uh, and in every X book I ever did, there's always someone who's pointing out, you know, there's a lot of people who are trying to find those slip ups. And, uh, you know, luckily for me, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty well prepared to to explain stuff and handle those those questions for the most part. For some reason, all I had pop in my head right now was Leonard Nimoy on The Simpsons going, didn't I? So thank you for that. Sure. But in regards to a lot of that, you know, yeah, the whole people don't want to wait for the story to finish. They want to ask their questions now. They want to do this. They want to do that. And you recently came back from multiple screenings of it, but Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and everyone – continually going on about certain points and they didn't realize, oh yeah, we have to wait for the story to end. And then we know why that thing from the first movie had happened and they don't, they don't want to wait. It's kind of, it can kind of be irksome in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're in such an interesting time culturally and, and, uh, the way that affects art. I mean, between the instant sort of communication and gratification and the ability to vent instantly of social media mixed with like, you know, the rise of YouTube and Netflix and sort of on-demand instantaneous entertainment, like, has created a, a culture that in a lot of ways sort of feeds into the idea of, of you know, there, there's not a lot of reward for the idea of delayed gratification. There are people who have questions and they can just ask them right away. And, they, you know, the, and I, I think, you know, there's a lot of good that comes from that. And I think that I, hopefully a lot of interesting things come from that. Hopefully the idea, like, I love the idea in some ways of, of you know, a sort of call and response between artist and, and audience. Um, uh, and comics, more than anything else, is, I mean, comics is sort of the fastest medium for for art to get out there. Like, we write a comic, someone draws it for 40 days, and then three weeks later, it's on store shelves. It's like, it's a pretty fast and direct communication with the audience. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I love the idea that Twitter or social media can really be, it can really be a conversation, a two-way conversation. But I, I don't, I don't see a lot of that being used to its potential yet. But yes, there is this sort of the ability and the desire to sort of pick things apart instantly and and critic and critique them and comment on them before you've seen the whole big picture is is a is a fascinating modern uh, cultural thing that we're sitting in right now that I um, I don't necessarily think is beneficial for anyone involved yet. That's why my again my my major go to one was people wondering about Ray and the force awakens back in 2015 and the continual, you know, that one, uh, term that they would use that I don't want to say, cause I really, really hate it. But 
they didn't realize, oh yeah, this is a, it's a three act story. Episode seven, episode eight, and finally episode nine. Now, by the time we know, we know what happens. And again, yeah, the instant gratification, tell me now, well, you got to (laughs) wait. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's interesting and I, I get it. I get the, uh, I think some of it also comes from, you know, the transition from comics, from being more of a one and done standalone issue medium to, to a longer form storytelling form of storytelling. Like I understand that you went and you, you went to the shop and you paid your four bucks and you know, for some people like they want the complete package from those four bucks and, and you don't always get it. You get part of a bigger picture and, you know, hopefully it's rewarding for you, but I, I get the idea that, you know, well, I have questions and I want to know what the answers were I paid already. Um, but yeah, it's just not that that medium doesn't always work like that anymore. And, and so it's a, it presents an interesting thing because you don't want people to read your comics and be frustrated or be annoyed that they don't understand stuff. But you also want to keep mystery and excitement and questions because that's what keeps people coming back. So it's, it's, it is a little bit of a tightrope act in a lot of ways now. That is the thing I love about a lot of this. Like you look back at the Mandalorian with all eight chapters and every week I was thinking to myself, what's next, what's going to happen next and watching people speculate what it could be. And since you're a big star Wars fan, with the child, what do you think the child is? I have my theories. I'd love to hear yours. Um, what I think it is. Yeah. Uh, the baby Yoda. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, I just always assume that it's of the race that Yoda is and it's some, you know, of some importance to the force. And that's why everyone's afraid of it. But I, uh, uh, more than that, I, I don't really have a, a big theory. I mean, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's Yaddle's kid. I would like that. <laughs> I, I love me some Yaddle. Um, if, if Yaddle survived and we get to see baby Yoda and Yaddle reunion, that would obviously make it bring everyone to tears. It's a beautiful thing. And, uh, but yeah, what is your theory? I think it's a clone and in regards to this, the series takes place, I believe, five years after Return of the Jedi, right? Like yeah, something I like that. After, yeah. Wouldn't 50 years have been since the fabled Clone Wars? So maybe they were trying to like experiment with other species. Hey, let's clone this after they cloned all of Aquaman's dad. <laughs> oh, I forgot that he was Aquaman's dad. Um yeah, I think that's yeah, that seems perfectly possible. Obviously, you know, not to spoil anything, but clones are a big part of Star Wars and still are. So it it is a that seems perfectly possible. I you know, I I kind of wonder if they're going to try and bring us to a Yoda planet. Um I I feel like I'd be a little disappointed if we went to a Yoda planet. Me too. I like the mystery so, of like what his species is. Yeah, for sure. I think I think he's works best if as a mystery and and so yeah I mean I think the clone's an interesting idea, uh, but I, I'm sort of a wait and see guy. I'm in Star Wars. I I just like being a fan for the most part. So I, I think some of the cool stuff also that comes out of the, Man, the Mandalorian is like the merchandising we've already seen so far for it with like pop vinyls and stuff like that. I love knowing we have Werner Herzog pop vinyls coming, which yeah. That's it's, a sense I never thought I'd say. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing. The uh 
it's 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 very uh, surreal. I, I really hope he gets an action figure. I assume he probably will at some point. And I was like, I don't know. I, I that that's going to be on you know my Christmas gift list for everybody when that comes out. I tweeted a few weeks ago when he showed up, but I said, "Oh my God, this means there's a possibility we might get Bill Burr action figures." And it's true. <laughs> true. It, it's again. There's just so much about it. What did you think of the series itself, by the way? Of oh, the Mandalorian? Yeah, uh, I loved it. I thought it was great. You know, it, I think it, it's it's fun because it's a different. You know, it's a different scale than a lot of the Star Wars stuff we see. It's not a galactic war stuff. It's it's a little more personal, a little more intimate. But, like, it, it still borrows from a lot of the same influences that Lucas borrowed from initially. And I think it, you know, nods to a lot of the, like, uh, you know, the, the spaghetti westerns and the old samurai tales and, you know, Kurosawa films and stuff like that and in a fun way. And, and I, I, you know, obviously, like, the Lone Wolf and Cub influence is... is huge in in the thing but like lone wolf and cub is one of the great stories of all time so uh it's kind of the thing you know in in some ways it's like sort of how i feel about solo you know i really loved solo i thought it was a really fun film it feels very different from everything else in star wars because essentially it's just a heist movie and you know it it i love the idea that like star wars is a rich enough universe that you can drop in other genres and other other kind of tropes and ideas into it and the universe will just absorb them and and make them you know sort of filter put a star wars filter on them and and you can do it and I, when i was watching solo i was like oh this is amazing we're going to start getting star wars you know rom-coms and star wars horror stories and all these things that i really would love to see and then you know audiences weren't as crazy about solo and they were like oh we're not going to do that so i'm hoping mandalorian sort of kickstarts that of like yeah, we're doing spaghetti Western Star Wars now. Like, shouldn't we do, you know, insert your other genre Star Wars stuff? Is That's my hope, at least. The thing I love about Solo as well as The Mandalorian is now we're getting a little bit more of a uh, further look at the Corellians, who a friend of mine calls uh, Space New Jerseyans, which is <laughs> so perfect. It's so perfect sure. for them. Sure, but yeah. The... There's so many different elements of this, the Star Wars universe. And for yourself, you actually did a Star Wars Legends comic. The, I guess we could say like the newest issue of the 1977 series. And how did that come about? And just what were some ideas also that you wanted to put in there, but you're like, eh, I don't want to do that, but we'll see what we can do. You know, I, how did it come about? I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a huge Star Wars fan and really wanted to do some Star Wars stuff. And I'd sort of been going back and forth with Marvel about trying to do stuff, but it never, you know, the timing was never right or I was too busy or they didn't have a thing. And, um, there was sort of a lot of back and forth about what we should be doing. And then, uh, Mark Panicia, who's the head of the Star Wars group at Marvel called me and he was just like, Hey Matt, um, he's like, I have a question. Are you a fan of the original Star Wars comics? And I'm a huge fan of those books. So I had no idea where he was going with it, but I was like, yes, I have, you know, the complete run and single issues. I have them, uh, you know, in, in trade. It, it's, I love the book so much. And he was like, cool. 
Um, I'm going to call you back. And that was it. That was the whole initial conversation. <laughs> and you never and heard then, from him again. <laughs> I, I never heard from him again, so I just made a Star Wars con. No. You know, he, he called me back like a, a day or two later, and he was like, so this is what we're doing. We want to we wanna continue the original book and, and sort of do a, do a big Star Wars uh, issue 108. You know, the original series ended at 107. We want to do 108. It's the... You know, it's the 80th anniversary of Marvel, and we're doing a lot of lookbacks on on things that matter to to Marvel in the years, and and the original Star Wars series is one of those things. And I just, I you know, I was blown away. I said yes, and uh, immediately was so excited. And he said, yeah, it's just going to be an oversized single issue, and to tell that story. And I I couldn't wait. It it was it was such a fun, weird challenge because. At the same time, like those books, I love them so much. The original books, I think they're just pure fun, but they don't read like modern comics at all. Like they read, they're super caption heavy. They're, they're dense on panel count. Um, they're, they're these like very intense one and dones. Like they're, they're super compressed storytelling, like stuff that now would be two arcs of a, a comic series are, are 20 pages in those 22 pages. And so I was, I, you know, I wanted to capture that feel like the breakneck pace and the, the super intense, like everything's just moving really fast. I, I think it's always fun to throw that in a comic and, and sort of give people whiplash. But I also had this problem of being like, I can't do this caption heavy, super intense, like narration, third person, you know, like. Uh, just just this omniscient narrator isn't going to work for modern audiences. And like, we can't just sell this to people who read the comic in the seventies and eighties. We have to try and sell it to people now. Um, so it was a really fun sort of like struggle in the book to figure out how to do something that felt like it could be the bridge between the original book and the modern reader. And that, that's sort of the thing that I was really excited about, but there was an early iteration where I was like, we're going to do it a little more modern. And, uh, you know, I think people at Lucasfilm were like, no, don't like do it more classic, like do it, do it like, a like those books. And so I wrote up the script of what it would read like. And I was like, this is five pages of it. It's so intense. It's so much narration. And I sent it in and they were all like, oh, yeah, don't do this. Like, you can't do this. <laughs> um, and so that was something that I really wanted to do that I didn't get to do uh, in some ways. But, you know, I don't know that I really wanted to do it. But I, I think it would be fun to really like, you know, sort of write the, you know, it's the comics equivalent of writing a period piece. It's like really throw doing a throwback style. Um, and I was sort of, you know, I, I, I hit a, a happy middle point in there, but like, I, I, I do regret a little bit, not leaning into it a little more at some points. And on top of that, you even had Walter Simonson do the cover of the book. So like how much more, you know, retro star Wars can you get for that? Oh yeah. I mean, actually when we started, uh, Mark Panicia for Marvel was like, you know, would you be offended if if we talked to Walt because he wrote and drew a lot of the original issues and, you know, he's obviously a, a dear friend of the company and he might have some thoughts. And I was like, oh, my God, I would I would love to talk to him. He's a he's a hero of mine. And um, they were like, you know, set aside a couple hours and let's just jump on the phone. And I, I got to get on the phone with him and 
you know, I think we were on the phone for two hours and he was just telling me stories of the old books and how it worked and his thoughts. And, you know, I, I bounced some ideas off him and he bounced some ideas off me and it, and it was just, you know, about as cool as writing comics ever gets is, is that, that moment of just like talking about the original Star Wars series with Walt Simonson and like telling him your ideas and him being like, Oh, that's pretty cool. And I like that. And then from there, you know, when we got off the phone, when we were getting out the phone, he was like, Hey, you know, would you be offended if I, you know, offered to do up the cover for the book? And I was like, no, that would be about the biggest honor of my life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, he did, he did the cover and it, I just love it so much. It's, it's one of my favorite things that I've ever had my name on is, is that cover. And around also this time you were working on the uncanny X-Men. This kind of similar. Did you ever talk with like Chris Claremont about, you know, your writing for the book and, you know, in, in comparison with his? Nope. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I'm a huge Claremont fan. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of his work, but, uh, no, I mean, you know, like I was obviously nodding to a lot of his stuff, but a lot of the, a lot of what we were sort of pointing to and, and, and acknowledging and, and referencing more, I mean, we were trying to touch on all the eras, but like we were really coming out of like Cullen Bunn and Mark Guggenheim and Kelly Thompson, Ed Brisson. And then before them, you know, like Bendis and Dennis Hopeless and, and Lemire and all these people who did other X stuff. Like, you know, there's a lot of people between Claremont and me, um, Kieran Gillen and, and, you know, I know a lot of them, Jason Aaron, like I, I, I know a lot of them and, and had talked to a lot of them in passing or in, or in greater detail for some of them, but mostly like, you know, the uh, Star Wars 108 was a tribute book to the original Star Wars. Uh, my X-Men story had to sort of be my X-Men story and I can't, right. you know, I, I, I've studied Claremont and I, I know his work, but I, it wasn't a tribute to him and any more than, uh, it's a tribute to anyone else. I mean, it's in some ways it's a tribute to all everyone who's written X-Men before and everyone's comic, you know, everyone's Marvel book is, but no, I, I just wanted to sort of, you know, I had specific things that I needed to get done in order to set other stuff up that was coming. And, and yeah, we just sort of set out and did our own thing kind of. And one of my favorite things about that X-Men run, by the way, is the overall design of it too, where you look at the, the uh, recap page, especially like the design of it, it's just it's very yeah. uh, like the neonish colors. Like it's very vibrant and it's so eye catching. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there was a fun, you know, when I as soon as I told them, I was like, you know, I want to use throwback costumes. I want to use the Jim Lee costumes for a lot of the characters, and you know, it's going to be a mishmash of different costumes. But I sort of want to want to lean back into that. The uh, I think I think a lot of brains started going crazy thinking about, you know, who could be drawing stuff, who could be designing stuff and what it would look like. And I think it had a fun kind of retro but modern vibe to it that I, I really did love. I mean, Salvador Laroca did the first uh, six covers for my solo run and then uh, Wills Protasio did the, the next six. And, you know, obviously, there's you know those are huge names and sort of X-Men, uh, and comics in general, but X-Men in specific. And then, yeah, I, I always thought it was a, a very pretty well put together book for sure.
and just again, I I love the multiple man cover from X, uh, Uncanny X Men number two. Just how it's a complete, an immediate oh, yeah. parody of the very first cover, and it's just it's so fantastic to see that. Yeah, yeah, we were. It, it was it, the the one thing that disappointed me because uh, Laniel, you who did the first cover. And it was just, you know, a bunch of the X-Men sort of looking out and he turned it in. and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, it's a really good cover. Just the team. And then he turned in the next day, he turned in the multiple man one. And we were just all like laughing so hard at how brilliant it is. My one regret is that since the book was weekly, all the those covers were revealed together. And I was like, I, I really wish we had at least a week or, you know, ideally like a month, but, you know, more time for people to like take in and know the cover for the first issue and get used to it and then see the play of the second one. I, I, I would have loved that, but yeah, it's still, it still makes me chuckle when I look at it. It is one of my favorite covers. Multiple man homage covers should be a thing. And I'm genuinely sad. That's never been like a, a theme month for Marvel. That would be amazing to see. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. Um, it was a. Uh, I I was I was surprised that that was the second issue cover when I saw it, but I was like, oh no, it's perfect. It it perfectly matches what we're trying to do here in in such a fun way. Matthew, I'm just jumping back because I had nearby, unintentionally, but here it was the the Star Wars 108, and I just couldn't didn't realize eleven names on the bottom of this issue. Yours right there in the front, and then of course Walt Simonson, uh, his distinctive dinosaur, well Stegosaurus. Uh, Signature Brontosaurus. And I thought it was a Stegosaurus. No, that's Stegman. Ste- aye, aye, aye. But all those names, and I mean, I wouldn't usually see, I don't think, that many names unless there were multiple stories in here. Yeah. You know, we, we the uh, one of the things we wanted to do, a lot of those original uh, Star Wars issues sort of had chapters in them. They had, like, real a real chapter break kind of thing. And we wanted to do that. That was something I said early on. It's like, I don't want it to flow the way a modern comic sort of flows scene into scene. I want it to be more kind of splash page and, and title card for every section. So we did that. And early on when I was talking about that, I think Marvel really liked that idea and said, Oh, if we're doing that, we could get all these amazing artists who've worked on star Wars in the past and, uh, you know, some of the, some of the great people we have now to all do chapters. And so it's sort of a love letter to different eras of Marvel. So it's like it's some of the people worked on, you know, the Dark Horse Star Wars books and things like that. And so, yeah, all, all the different uh, every section is drawn by a different different artist and it, it flows really well. And I think it works amazingly because of the chapter break format it wasn't my idea to do that i just wanted to write it like that Mm -hmm. um but but we were lucky that you know i think folks at marvel were smart and saw a cool opportunity to like bring some more people into the fold on the book and and make something that's even more of a love letter to different eras of star wars and yeah i was really really excited when you know for anytime they're like oh there's gonna be a lot of people drawing your comic Usually you're like, oh, that's not great. Um, but but this is this was one where I was like, oh, this is so cool. And then when they brought everyone out and who the people are, I was like really, you know, just sort of blown away by by how awesome it was. And with the Star Wars Legends, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of books, a lot of favorites. What are some of your favorites of the Legends canon, the Legends area? And what are some deep cuts for you? Of the Star Wars 
of uh, legends. legends. Yeah, just legends in general, like you know, uh, Timothy Zahn's books and whatnot. I mean, obviously Zahn's books are huge. Um, I was a big fan of the Rogue Squadron novels. Like I always loved the Rogue Squadron stuff. <clears throat> um, those were those were books that I just couldn't get enough of, and. You know the the shorts ones, especially Jabba's Palace and and Cantina, were were books that I just would read and reread. Um, I love a lot of the the Dark Horse stuff. Um, the Dark Horse comics, I think there's a there's a real era in there of like uh, very very cool stuff, especially the stuff around Mara Jade and and that kind of stuff is is stuff I really like a lot. Um, I'm a big sucker for the Shadows of the Empire game. Same. Um, it's a it's a favorite game of mine. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I there's so much that I love in 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 the sort of legend stuff, and obviously the original. Uh, you know, it's funny because people talk about legends and and you know they refer to the original Marvel comics as legends. It's that continuity now, but actually, like the original Marvel comics aren't even the same continuity as everything that came after really like they don't they don't exactly fit they're kind of their own thing so like the novels and the comics you know the dark horse comics and all the novels and games and stuff that that followed are are different than the marvel stuff but those marvel books were sort of my first taste of the idea of an expanded universe and i i that to me is always something that you know will be near and dear to my heart Going back now to the um, Solo and Rogue One movies, I took them at face value as their own stories. I think overall they held up, you know, fine on their own. And, you know, who's to say with Mandalorian that that can't usher in other ones? Like maybe a, a, a standalone, you know, Yoda movie. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I want a standalone Yoda movie. I love Yoda, but I like him as a a little bit of mystery, but at the same time, like, you know, I'm very excited for whatever the Obi-Wan stuff that happens, if it ends up happening, it's going to be. So maybe, you know, I I would like to be proven wrong and love a Yoda movie. Imagine two hours of Yoda like dialogue. It'd be intense. Yes, it would. You know what? That came over time, over age. Cause how old was he? Like 900 or so, but you know, he must've, he must've been a lot taller. He must've sounded a lot clearer in his speech. The ears are another story, but, you know, and the green tinge, well, you know, that came along with, with age. So there you go. Yeah. And Maybe that's the story. Yoda just see? aging and sort of getting a little feeble. With the Disney Plus series, by the way, what is like your dream series you would love to see for Star Wars? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I'm really excited about the Rogue One prequel one, the Cassian stuff. If that ends up happening, uh, I think is very cool. I think that was, you know, the kind of thing that I, I, I would like to see more. But honestly, like, I would love to see a, a pilots focused show. Like, I think we, you know, there, there's so much, there's such an emphasis on on Jedi stuff a lot. And I think the, you know, like a Rogue Squadron show, a Rogue Squadron series of movies, like that sort of my, would be a real, sort of the hit the sweet spot for me, I think. Personally, I'd love to see like a Tag and uh, Bink style series because we kind of got like a hint of that oh, in that opening. First. Yeah. With uh, Mandalorian with Baby Yoda getting punched in the head. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
but there again there's just so much to do with that there's so many different things that have never been done and this is my segue because it's you know it's not a segue without you pointing it out Peter but a segue of <laughs> it's never been done before until recently your punisher run where you ended up making the war machine punisher yeah what is it like well, seeing now like Marvel Legends of the figure, of the outfit, the helmet, you're seeing statues, you're seeing it in video games now? That must be wild to see. Yeah, yeah, it's really crazy. Um it's it's uh it's awesome. It's really always like kind of a a weird you don't know that you want a toy of something that you made until it's like announced and then I was like, "Oh, I need that. Like I have to have that." Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, someone sent me a thing. They were like, Oh, I got my kid, the Punisher war machine figure for Christmas. And it's like, I don't know. It's pretty overwhelming to think that like some kid got something I made for Christmas. It's really like a very intense, uh, it's really beautiful and, and, and sweet. And like, you know, I, I, I don't ever, it's the kind of thing that I don't ever want to lose sight of like how, how, awesome that is and 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 weird and surreal but uh yeah i mean it's really cool i'm 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 really honored every time they announce a new thing like that and i just got the uh they did venomized pop vinyls of different characters and they did x23 is venom and the design is based on the edge of venom verse issue one that i did which was x23 becomes venom it was like that design from my book is the the pop vinyl and i was like oh here's a pop vinyl of a character that i made um yeah it's 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 weird it's you know like i never think about it as like it feels very separate from the job i mean the job is telling stories and making comics but at the end of the day like you know we we sort of shorthanded a lot and say like you know put the tools back in the toolbox you know take the toys off the shelf whatever but like uh, it's weird to think that you're you're literally like making toy making future toys um it's a strange strange sort of phenomenon for sure well then maybe the next part of the surreal thing for you Matt would be uh you going to cons and somebody having you sign autograph a figure kind of thing oh yeah i've had to do that uh i had to do that the War Machine one, but the they made the hel- a replica of the helmet, and I've had to sign a bunch of those, mm. um, which is pretty cool. I've signed other figures that are like characters I wrote a lot, but yeah, the signing the the, the Punisher War Machine toy was definitely a, a trip. I would also imagine, you know, with the convention scene, you're able to meet your fans and talk to people. And the, one of the things I've noticed about you when I see you at a con is you engage with your fans. You talk with them for a little while, and you end up giving them that special kind of moment. And the first time you heard it, what was it like when someone told you how much your work meant to them? Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm like kind of a shy kind of person and sort of a, a little bit of a, uh, I get real self-conscious about, you know, people being very, effusive about the stuff I do it, it it sort of makes me feel embarrassed and uh it's it's incredibly flattering obviously and and 
wonderful, but it, it's strange. But I, I always try, I used to, when I started doing this, I, I would always be like kind of self, -depre uh, self deprecating and kind of like, you know, people would be like, Oh, I love the book. And I'd be like, yeah, it's okay. You know, and or whatever. And, and, um, I, I just realized that like, that's not when something is important to someone, they don't want to hear from the person who made it, that it wasn't important to them. Like that's <laughs> yeah. not a nice feeling. And it, you know, I, I, I just, you know, like I, I just imagine sort of going up to, you know, someone who's made something I love and being like, I love this thing and have them be like, okay, like, it's fine. I'd be like, so hurt. So I, I always try and, you know, be very receptive, but also, you know, like, like you said, like have those real interactions. When I was, when I was trying to break in as a comics creator, I would, I spent a lot of time going to cons and like trying to talk to the pros I cared about. And, and there are a bunch of people like, you know, like Brian Bendis and, and Greg Pak and, um, Brian Vaughn and, and a lot of writers who I really love their stuff who would dance a lot were just like super generous with their time and advice and, and really warm and, and, and just really kind. And, and that's sort of what I aspire to be. I mean, uh, all, all those guys I listed and a ton more, um, really made sure to like make it, make it feel appreciated that I, I like their, that I read their books and like their books and make it, make sure that, uh, you know, I, I felt like I, I got a nice interaction with them and that it was a real moment that mattered. And, um, you know, and uh, more than that, like, I, I also am a, a firm believer that like, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just a guy who really likes comics and I'm lucky enough to make them. So like, I don't want these huge, like sort of walls to be put between me and the people who read the books. Like if people want to come and talk to me about whatever, like I'm, I'm happy to listen. I'm happy to chat about whatever. Always. It's like, we're all just comics fans. I don't, I don't see like me sitting behind a table at a comic con and me, you know, in my local comic shop on Wednesday, picking up books. Like there's not that much of a difference. Like we're all there for the same reason. It's cause we like comics and like, yeah, we can just talk about stuff and it's fine. So, uh, that's how I sort of try and approach, interacting with with people who read the books as much as I can and and hopefully people find it enjoyable to talk to me <laughs> I don't know I you know I I uh I'm flattered obviously anytime someone wants to talk to me but I'm also always a little confused but it's it's nice and the cool thing about the comic scene is the fact that there is that sense of community and you know when people get along and they're not dicks to each other. You know, it's, it's a cool thing to see. And like, like I said, I've made so many friends in this medium and I'm happy about that. And one of the things is just going to a local comic shop and, you know, talking with the staff or talking to your fellow fans and with the New York city comic scene, there's a lot of different shops and obviously don't, you know, say what your home shop is, but what are like some of your favorite shops in the New York city area? Uh, favorite shops in New York city area. I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, I love Midtown is a great shop, super supportive. Um, I just signed at JHU, uh, this week and they're a, a fun shop I've shopped at for years and years and years. Um, I used to work at forbidden planet, so I have a soft spot for them, obviously. Um, 
Samar's Comics, who are no longer with us, but I it was a great them store. So much. Yeah. Um, Anyone Comics in, in Brooklyn is a great shop, and I don't get to it enough. And Vinyl Fantasy in Bushwick is a shop I love because it's also a record store, and it's a great record store, and they're just cool people who run it. And um, yeah, those are those are the shops I like the most. Carmine Street uh, in the West Village is a very small but like very passionate shop, and I think is a uh, definitely really has that great sense of community that I, that I I love in a comic shop. All those pl- spots are are places I really like. You mentioned Carmine Street. You got to give it up for John Gorga because like he is he is one of the nicest people in like this field, this medium. For sure, hundred percent. Uh, I'll always support John. John is John is one of the greats in in all of comic sales and and you know. Uh, if ever there was someone who who is run entirely by passion and 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 just you know is is just someone uh, who who subsists on passion and emits passion for the medium and is just uh, uh, such a beacon of energy and and hope for comics, it's John. So I watched him find a box of uh, like John Byrne era X Men books, including a bunch of the Dark Phoenix books. And I remember, like, the glow he emitted. And it wasn't a Phoenix kind of glow, but it was, like, he just lit up, like, just talking about the storyline. He's like, I remember when this happened and this happened and this happened. And mm-hmm. he's passionate about it, you know? For sure. For and sure. that's a good thing. It is a great thing. Are there any uh, sites in your radar this year, Matt, that you're going to be going to regarding cons or other things like that? Um. I don't know what I'm doing for cons this year. Uh, I think I'm going out to Portland next month for Comics Pro, but that's not actually a convention. That's just to talk with retailers. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I'm sort of taking it a little easier this year. Uh, 2019 was a, a little brutal. Um, I'm trying to do more store signings when I can. I've already done two. I have two tomorrow, so I will be four for four, four days into the year. Um, which is a, a fun feeling. I don't think I can keep it up to 365, but, uh, uh you know, I, I'm hoping to get a sign at a, a lot of stores and, and really get out there and, and help support retailers however I can. We do hope um, to see you make a return to Main Street Comics in Middletown, New York, and maybe, you know, we could do uh, The Marvelous Live, too, because we had our Daniel Kibblesmith episode. We wouldn't mind doing, you know, with a certain... Uh, Writer of a hawk guy, just saying. I would, I would, I would love that. I love Main Street. I love Peter. He's. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> Couldn't let uh, that one go. Sure. No. There you go. Um, yeah, I would love to come up there again. Maybe when it's a little warmer. Well, I mean, by issue five. Hmm. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be warmer by issue five. That's true. But I don't know. I, uh, I'll, I will talk to them. I'm sure. On the topic, though, of Hawkeye, because obviously this is the main reason we're here to talk with Hawkeye. Talking with did, the Hawk. Mm-hmm. How did that come about, and what was the very first thing that you really wanted to do with this series? Um, yeah, so, I mean, this is a book that I wanted to do. I wrote Tales of Suspense, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, whatever it was, and... Uh, 
I was sort of ready to roll into this book right away, except my schedule, my plate was kind of too full. And so I had to, you know, sort of reassess and reevaluate um, when I could give Hawkeye the attention I wanted. And, and now that the Punisher and X-Men have wrapped for me, I, I could dive in. But, uh, y- you know, Hawkeye's, Hawkeye's an interesting book because it's a, a book with, you know, he's he's a, such a well-known character. He's been in the Marvel Universe for so long, and he's in the movies, and he's going to have a TV show and all these things. Um, but he's not really one to have long-running solo series. He's kind of a... Um, he's not on that stature. He's not a Spider-Man or Captain America that always has to have a book. And because of that, he's sort of... You know, I think he's a really interesting character and a great character, and he he sort of attracts these great prestigious creative teams and runs. And whether it's you know the original Mark Grunewald Hawkeye book or you know the solo Avenger stuff, or onto you know obviously you can't talk about Hawkeye without talking about Fraction and Aha. But like you know Jeff Lemire and Ramon Perez and. Kelly Thompson's awesome run. Like there, there's so much Hawkeye stuff that I really love. And, and and I think the, one of the things that got me really excited about the book is trying to do something that both, you know, pays tribute to the stuff that's come before, but also the fun of a Hawkeye book is that it sort of reinvents itself a lot. And so we were trying to both do something that felt like a Hawkeye book, but in doing that, it has to feel very different than everything, all the other Hawkeye books. And so that, that's a fun challenge to have. And I think, when people see where we're going with this and where we're taking Clint, I, I think they'll they'll get that, um, you know, it's a little different than a lot of stuff that's come before. We're, we're taking him someplace new here. And it's uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how people feel about it. So now before we wrap this episode up, one of the things I want to ask you is why should fans check out Hawkeye Freefall? I loved it myself so far. And I know I'm going to love the rest, but I'd like to have you tell the audience at home why they should be checking it out. Um, it's pretty much the best comic. Um, I like that. No, I can, <laughs> yeah, that's use that. You can use that. No, I, I, you know, I think, I think Hawkeye is, is a really fun character. He's one of my favorite characters in the Marvel universe because I think he's, um, he's really accessible and really relatable character. He's, he's sort of his own, you know, he, he's, he doesn't have superpowers. He's not, you know, a mutant. He's not bitten by a spider. He wasn't, he's not a God. He's not a super genius or a billionaire. He's just a guy who has a troubled past. Who's trying to make amends for that. And, um, in that, like, I think you find this very relatable character who's funny and charming, but also very valuable. And, you know, like he's fiercely brave and, and incredibly loyal, but also like uh, screws up a lot and is kind of headstrong and stubborn. And I, I think there's a lot for people to grab onto there with Clint and, and who he is that that I think is some of the best things about the Marvel Universe and about about Marvel Comics is like how much of yourself you can find in Clint and is, is a big thing. And so that's something that I, I always really love. And, and in keeping with that spirit, like of how unique and he is and, and how personally is we're, we're trying to really make a book that I think really stands out on shelves. Um, Otto Schmidt's art is, you know, just breathtaking and 
Um, I'm just writing, trying to keep up with him. But I think we're trying to make a book that that looks different and feels different, but still feels very much like a Marvel comic and, and, you know, captures the heart of the Marvel universe, but doesn't look like a Captain America book or a Black Panther book or a Spider-Man book. It, it, it looks different and, and, you know, but it fits in. And, and I think there's something really wonderful about, to me, the strength of the Marvel universe has always been that you have, you know, the Punisher, who's a guy riding the subway with a shotgun under his coat and you have, Howard the Duck, who's a duck from another dimension, and you have, you know, uh, Thor, and you have Spider-Man, and you have all these different facets and corners of the Marvel Universe, and that's the beauty of of it, is that it, all of it ties together, and I think when you get a book that finds its own little corner in the way that we're trying to do with Hawkeye, I think that really speaks to, like, a lot of what I love about Marvel so much, and a lot of a lot of what I think is, is, is beautiful about, about superhero comics and just like the, the, they're all part of a big picture, but, but everyone has their own little unique corner and piece and, and we're our own fun, weird, quirky little corner with this book. And, and so far people have been really reacting to that and it's, it's been awesome. Well, I think the whole relatability, like you mentioned about the qualities and the not so good characteristics of Hawkeye, the headstrongness. People can relate to that. So there's there's that, and it it permeates a lot of the Marvel characters. Just It just threw me right immediately back to Peter Parker being the troubled teenager. He's not all this super superhero thing. He's got his own problems. He's got to get his homework done. He's got an exam to take care of. Things like that. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's something in, in those characters that is, you know... Uh, um, you know, Captain America, I love Captain America dearly. Uh, Captain America is, is uh, you don't see a lot of yourself in Captain America. Captain America is the person you want to be. I think it's easier to see a lot of yourself in Hawkeye and a, and a Peter Parker and people like that. And, and easy to like, you know, uh, sort of look up to them, but also relate to them in a, in a real honest way. And, and I, I think that's, I think it's important in, in the in the genre. I think, I think for superhero comics to work, I think there has to be a, a good balance of the like inspirational, the aspirational, and the relatable. And and those three things I think come together super well in Hawkeye. So, um, yeah, that's why he's always been a favorite of mine. He's he's very much uh, a guy you could be friends with, a guy you could be, and like. Uh, you know, a, a, just a kind of hero that that there aren't enough of, and and I, so I, I feel really honored to be doing the book, and and hopefully people are 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 feeling that and relating to him, and in the same way I do. Well, Matthew, we do thank you for your time talking to us about the character and all the other stuff you've done. We wish you a lot of continued success, and hope to see you at some point in the near future. Awesome! Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a this was awesome. And Matthew, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Um, yeah, so it's Ashcan Press, A-S-H-C-A-N-P-R-E-S-S. I have that on Twitter, which I'm on way too much. And I have it on Facebook, which I'm very rarely on. And I have it on Instagram, which I'm almost never on. So, uh, you know, that's the way to do it. If you want to reach me, Twitter's probably the easiest. But, yeah, you can find me on there. In, on all those places at certain points. Matthew, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much, guys.
For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Matthew Rosenberg. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!